there and welcome to The Brave. This is the podcast about the people, companies, systems and ideas that are contributing to creating a better future. I'm your host, Beth and Vincent. I'm the managing partner of Open Velocity and we're a marketing strategy consultancy, but that's kind of by the by because I started this podcast way before I even founded the business as a bit of an excuse to speak to interesting people doing interesting things. So we speak to experts, innovators, company founders about what it takes to build new products, create new markets and generally challenge the status quo. And this week we have a really interesting guest on the podcast, Ian Omerod. So Ian, I think like many of us, believes that climate change is the greatest challenge of our time. And you'll you'll notice a bit of a theme in recent episodes where, where we've explored sustainability, net zero, the, cli- the response to the climate crisis from a number of different angles. And Ian actually doesn't come from a climate tech sustainability background. He worked in banking for 27 years before making the decision to do something completely different. And that's an incredibly brave decision to leave a fantastic career to jump into the unknown as a founder. So Ian actually founded Switch to Zero in late 2021 with the goal of making it easy, rewarding and affordable for businesses and individuals to achieve net zero. Switch to Zero, it's actually a green tech business, so it builds solutions to enable people across the globe to reduce their carbon footprint. And Ian and I get into this in the episode, but the carbon offsetting industry, well, it's currently not regulated and there is plenty of profiteering, greenwashing going on out there. And that's a real challenge for anyone kind of building in this space. You know, it's unregulated. There's a lot of kind of mistrust, frankly, about. And that's actually why trust, and we, we chat all around this, but trust is one of Switch to Zero's core values. So alongside kind of exploring Ian's journey as a founder, and it's, you know, a non-traditional journey, as in he he's not, you know, straight out of school founding a business or anything like that. He's had a really fantastic career, had a set of experiences that sets him up extremely well to do this. And we chat around, you know, transitioning to net zero. We touch on things like mental health, education, environmental impacts, and the whole kind of carbon offset industry and verification methods, you know, how it all kind of works under the hood and what role does corporate responsibility have in all of this? And, you know, how can we bring transparency to this situation? So it's a really wonderful episode. Ian is an extremely knowledgeable guest. And I think even if you're not interested, hopefully you are, but even if you're not interested in sustainability, just hearing Ian's kind of journey as a founder is interesting and valuable all in of itself. So we'll take it away with the interview and I hope you enjoy it. So my name's Ian Ormrod. I'm the CEO of Switch to Zero. Um, we were, we're a company that is focused on helping both businesses, individuals, and ultimately governments transition to net zero or accelerate their transition to net zero. Um, we were formed in um, November 21. Um, we launched our MVP into market in December 22. Um, and we've been building and growing ever since. Brilliant. And I guess what what kind of sparked the idea in the first place? Why why this? Because you've got a really impressive background, so you could have tackled any number of challenges. And that's, that's very kind of you to say. Um, and um, the the it's a long story, so but I will try and keep it short. Um, so I've had the privilege to work in banking for the best part of my career, twenty seven years. Embarrassingly, I'm quite old. Um, 
but and I the last bank I was working um, with BBVA and a phenomenal organization loved it really enjoyed it I was based in Madrid uh, commuting weekly back to the UK I had teams all over the world and was doing a lot of travel at the same time and while it was an, an amazing role and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it I was spending a lot of time from the family uh, away from the family and I kind of thought I'm going to blink and the kids would have left home and is this really the right thing to be doing um, and I made a decision and BBVA were incredibly accommodating and, and, and I made a decision to step away. I then, I actually stepped away and COVID happened, which gave me a lot of reflection time, uh, kind of imposed, um, but it was sort of in the plan. I was planning to take a little bit of time off. Um, and in part, I was, because I was spending so much time with the kids, um, and, um, helping them with revision for, for exams, they're coming up and things like that. Um, I was also reflecting on what I wanted to do next. And if I'm honest, when I had first came back across from Spain, I was going to take another corporate gig. I would have rocked up and hopefully, you know, work with another bank and, and continue doing what I was doing. Um, but I, I, I kind of reflected a lot and wanted to do something different. I, I've, I feel I have developed um, a lot of experience, skills and a black book that can help me address other problems. So it, my thought then thought, what other what do I want to address? I have three main soapbox speeches I have after a glass of wine. <laughs> um, one is the way we deal with mental health. Um, one is the way we educate our kids. Um, and the other is the impact we're having on the planet. Um, and I took time looking at all of those or thinking about a lot of those and feeling increasingly guilty with all the time I was spending with the kids thinking, wow, we're really creating massive problems for, for future generations. I have no excuse not to be a part of that solution if I can. Um, and so in short, I, I looked at those three and I felt I could do more in the sustainability space than I could anywhere else. Um, and that's what gave birth to Switch to Zero, really. It's interesting how you kind of assessed the different options and went through that route as well. I'm not, not sure how many people would approach it in that structured way, but that seems extremely logical. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm regularly being um, criticised, criticised, fed back that I'm ridiculously logical, a bit like a robot. Um, and I do tend to break down problems in that way, um, largely because a lot of what I've done in banking is about innovation and how do you create for the future? And in which case you need a lot of discipline to decide when you're and how you're taking risks and investing in things. And so for me, it's it's a natural technique you use to break things down. Um, and, and for me, it was all about, okay, I have a certain basket of stuff that I can bring to the game, as it were. What do I think is going to be most useful with the problems that are out there? Um, and, and for me, sustainability was a relatively clear winner. Um, mm. Uh, but, it, you know, and largely because it's it's a scale problem and it's a global problem. And my background is very much about building global digital businesses and solutions. Um, and while you could argue the same for education and mental health, they have so many nuances at a localized level um, and, a, and a cultural impact to all of those. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen from a sustainability perspective as well, but it's even more um bespoke and personalized which for me gave me less ability to affect at scale or i felt it did 
Uh, I'd never say never. So it doesn't mean I wouldn't necessarily go back and try and support those things as well. But but that's really what pushed me towards the sustainability piece. And I guess, you know, solving the climate crisis, kind of if, if we don't do that, mental health and education are, are slightly further down the list in some respects. And yeah, yeah, you could certainly argue that. I mean, there's also far brighter minds than mine having a very good go at both of those areas, as there is in sustainability, to be honest. So I, I certainly don't claim to be any, um, you know, messiah coming to help anything out particularly. But from a personal point of view, I thought I could have the biggest impact here is, is really the, the short answer of it, or whether that pans out or not, uh, we'll see. But I'm quietly confident we can we can do some real good and in terms of doing real good, how does Switch to Zero work in yeah, a nutshell? <laughs> so we we there's the, what we're building is a very broad platform over time. So what you see now is a small part of where we're going in the future. But what what we're doing now is creating the opportunity for individuals or businesses to take some immediate positive action. Um, and at the same time, providing insight, advice, um, and art, you know, sort of action-based articles and, and information that can help them take reductive action on their footprints. Um, so it, when I say positive action, we have a platform that enables people to um, purchase voluntary carbon offsets, but in a relatively unique way, um, collect pl plastic waste and plant trees. So that's kind of deliberate things you can do, fund and, and, and make a difference with. But, but there's also an enormous amount of stuff that you can choose to do to help reduce what your actual consumption is, which is the most important thing that we need to go after, if that makes sense. And carbon offsetting is an interesting area because obviously it's not, not without controversy and quite recent no. controversy. And so you, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've got, you've got the voluntary market and then you've got the kind of legislated market as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So you've got the compliance credit market, which is is a different thing. That's about um, at a high level, governments give industry sectors an emissions allowance and you either beat that or, you know, you come over it or under it. If you come over it, you have to buy credits from somebody else because you're not allowed to do that or you get a financial penalty. Or if you go under that, you can sell and therefore get a financial reward for uh, having less emissions. That's th those those credits are traded and that's called the, the, uh, uh, the compliance market because of, of the way that it, it works. There's also the voluntary carbon offset market, which is what we are involved in which is effectively creating a finance pool that invests in projects that look to either actively reduce um, the amount of CO2 or equivalent emissions or stop them, stop future ones potentially happening, if that makes sense. So we're, we're focused in that space, not the, the, the compliance market. That does. And I think that's an important um, distinction to draw because um, our listeners probably are from a variety of backgrounds and may not have come across either concept before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the voluntary, the voluntary market is the one where there's been particular controversy. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, how, how can a business be sure that, that you know, they're buying the, these carbon credits, carbon offsets, that actually something is happening, that that actually equates to good? Yeah, so so um, I just want to quickly go back. So 
there's controversy in both markets, uh, you know, so so I think there's a long way to go in both markets to give greater confidence in the, the rigor with which they perform and, and the transparency with which they perform. Um, but but you're right. We offer we, we focus on the offset market and, and more specific. So it, it, it's right that we should probably dig more into that space. Um, and, and to answer your question, how how do people how can people be sure? I think was the the term you used. The honest answer is you can't. You end up having to trust someone else. So it then becomes okay. What's your assessment criteria that helps you create that trust? And what is the evidence attached to that? If that makes sense. So, so yeah. you know, unless you happen to be a scientist and you know exactly, you know, you're measuring the output and the CO2 personally, you're reliant on the trust of other individuals. Um, when we, so in terms of a company themselves, they come to people and, and organizations like Switch to Zero to help give them confidence they're doing and picking the right things. Because we obviously, as part of the, I suppose, sales pitch, for want a better word, that we give to, to organizations is we take the complexity out of those sorts of purchases. We do the homework, which means you don't have to. And we typically blend where we purchase. So in other words, if you gave me £10, that £10 wouldn't just go into one project. What we do is pool money, invest across a, a, a range of projects, and that diversity helps both maximize the geographic spread, the category spread of the sorts of projects. And you can argue as a, as a result, to a degree, minimize some element of risk. Um, now, it doesn't if all of those projects are a complete waste of time and aren't doing anything, obviously. So that, that leads me on to the second bit, which is how do you assess the, the quality of a project? Um, we use six primary metrics when we're looking at this sort of thing, um, and they come under sort of they, they come under six categories, and there's there's various different areas be between. But the most common one you will hear is a term called additionality, which basically means would would this have happened anyway if this mm. this funding didn't happen? So okay, you're building a wind farm, but would the wind farm have been built if it was going to be built anyway? You can't really offset it because it was going to happen. Um, and so we, we have to understand that, that 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 side of things. It's it's often not black and white because mm. you, you, know, you can't always be 100 percent confident that that would or wouldn't have happened. Um, and you will actually quickly find none of these things are black and white. So you're taking a, a, an educated view, having looked at lots of different projects, track records of things that are happening the level of rigor of third-party verification that are happening bluntly the governments that are involved some are less transparent or trustworthy than others um so but additionality is a, an important one there are there are five others i won't go into quite as much depth for more but just to give you a flavor there's there's what's called overestimation so it, it it's common for projects to be overly optimistic about the amount of impact that they have so obviously understanding how they've estimated what they've used of their baseline how they're projecting their their future impact is is really important um you then got what we call permanence or what is called permanence so um if you're planting a tree that's awesome but if you burn the tree in 50 years time you're releasing all that 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 that, that sequestration of, of carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere so you have to understand the lifespan of what it is you're investing in 
um, and the likelihood that that's either maintained or, or 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 secure for a period of time. And nothing really is permanent, you know. So so it's not that you can guarantee that it's never going to be released again. Um, but you're looking for a, a degree of permanence that gives you confidence that it's making a positive contribution. Um, you've then got exclusivity. And that's really that. Is there any double counting going on? So if, if you're selling me a tree and I'm saying I'm planting it, am I selling the same tree to 50 other people? Yeah. And I think that's been the issue with a lot of schemes. Yeah, and I, I think the, t- the 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 main two issues there's there's question marks around it, ex- exclusivity for some, and also additionality. So, for example, there are a number of relatively high profile schemes that have been caught out, and rightly so, um, because they've been doing a combination of both. So they're basically saying, "Hey, protect this forest" is one of the most common ones because if you don't, we're gonna it's gonna get cut down, and then. Actually, when you do your homework, you realize the forest is in a position on a mountainside where it's completely uneconomical to cut down. No one's ever going to go near that commercially because they just couldn't afford it. They would not make a profit from cutting that wood down. Um, And then on top of that, they're saying, "Okay, you know, there's whatever, 20,000 trees in that sort of little forest. And, and there's, you know, they've got credits 10 times that. So, so you know, there's there's that side of things. There's also the calculations that go into, well, how much does that species sequester and yeah. over time, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, th- there is definitely a challenge around that double counting. What we do with that, uh, is it completely bulletproof? No, and none of this is, to be clear, but it's really the the reputation of those that you're trading with is is what you're reliant on there and third-party verification so we won't buy credits from anyone that doesn't have like third-party verification so there's somebody else checking their homework um in the same way that big organizations are audited from a financial perspective and their accounts are so it's that double check mechanism not only catching deliberate misrepresentation Mm. mistakes because human mistakes happen so so you know there's that part of it as well there were two other things i didn't mention um that we also cover in our assessment Uh, one is leakage um which basically means if you if you restrict or create um something in one place does it create a problem elsewhere so if i put a heavy tax burden on steel in the uk we might stop producing steel in the UK, um, but we just import shed loads of steel from India and their emissions go up proportionately. So actually, you're not doing anything. Yeah. So so leakage is also another quite important point um, and, and, and an influencer. And then there's a generic bucket that we but a very important one, which is social environment and an environmental impact. So you see this sort of stuff come up with um, quite often with hydroelectricity, if it's dam related. Because, you know, OK, you're going to flood a massive piece of land and impact impact the ecosystem quite substantially and often the communities. Um, and so if we're if we're looking at things like that, um, you're, you're making an assessment of, of the broader benefits or impacts. Now, actually, with the projects we pick um, in our view and the view of the project providers, um, being neutral isn't acceptable. You should be positive. So you should be having a positive impact, particularly socially. And there is then a broader positive impact environmentally. Clearly, if you're building something, 
um, whether it's a wind farm, a, a hydroelectricity plant, or a, um, a whatever, a solar panel farm, whatever they may be, there is an environmental impact. You, um, but you you then have to take a view of the breadth of that in the in in the in the context of what is being built and and and, and things. So we're not big fans of big dams. Is the short version because we you know for us that's kind of pretty impactful from a negative point of view and it's hard to justify a lot of the time not not always but it, it, it is hard to justify some of the time it's really interesting because it almost sounds and I'm I'm not a finance person at all so maybe this is the wrong kind of analogy but almost sounds like it's a self-regulating market in some respects yes and no so there are some pretty well regarded organizations that offer certification so third-party verification or, or at least the methodology with which to assess a, a project and you've actually got two um we we partner with gold standard um and we also work with the un uh, who we consider that the uh, the most robust um and they gold standard for example is a, an ngo that was sort of given birth from the wwf years ago and have, have created they not only do their own projects they do a lot of certification for others um and that's a pretty rigorous approach um and projects that have gone through that we would naturally then have a high level of confidence they're doing what they say on the tin we then investigate once that bar is achieved so so we're not looking at the mass of hundreds of thousands of projects. Not you. Yeah. What we're doing is, okay, who do who do who do who we consider the best from a certification and assessment point of view consider really, really good? And then from those really, really good ones, who do we pick? Because we think they're even they're the best of that crop, if that makes that sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um now ultimately we're gonna have to get better as an industry, because if everyone's just top picking the top 3%, that you know, that, that doesn't really help the masses. Um, and as we scale um, as a business, we're looking, we're going to be looking increasingly at how we pick the gems and influence those projects more, much more directly. Um, and what verification, and actually I'm a big believer in technology. So how can you do that in real time and you know what's happening um, rather than, uh, um, you know, hope you get an annual report or a quarterly report or whatever it might be that tells you stuff. Yeah, uh, I saw an interesting example of that of someone using um, satellite imagery and then kind of computer vision on the top of it to actually understand deforestation in certain areas that were meant to be protected. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So deforestation is probably one of the hottest topics and, and certainly some of the articles I suspect you're referring to um, deforestation gets hit quite hard, you, you know, in terms of either claiming that this stuff's all going to be cut down unless and therefore selling credits off the back of it or planting the wrong trees in the wrong place and, mm. and them not really doing anything useful or claiming enormous amounts of sequestration credit way in advance of anything useful happening for the sapling that's just been planted. So what we what we've done in that in that scenario um, is we don't allow our members to count tree planting as a voluntary carbon offset. So uh. 
our voluntary carbon offsets do not look at reforestation projects. To be clear there, that doesn't mean I don't think they're a great thing to do. I do. I just don't feel it's robust enough yet to have the confidence to stand behind it in front of my customers and say, look, this is nailed on. I think we will evolve in that way in the future. But what we do do is enable them to plant shed loads of trees. But for me, it's kind of a different message. You're doing it because it's a really good thing to do more often mm-hmm. than not. But it's about paying it forward for the next generation. So don't try and claim all of the CO2 it's going to sequester in the next 100 years or 25 years or whatever it is your timeline is. Just say you planted a tree. Awesome thing to do. Let's yeah. pay it forward. So that, that's what our platform does when, when it comes to tree planting. Um, it's the same with plastic waste. Um, we enable people to, collect, to, to, to make contributions to the collection of plastic waste. We don't allow them to use that activity to offset or claim that they're offsetting a carbon footprint or anything else. If you have a really plastic heavy product, it's great to be able to say you enable yeah. the collection of X tons of plastic waste a year. It doesn't offset the fact you're producing lots of plastic products, but it's a great thing you can do while you're trying to transition away from the use of plastics and other things. Um, and, 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 and so we offer those sorts of solutions, but we are very clear about what we consider the transparent way of communicating the benefits of those. Um, and, and I think that's very important. And for businesses particularly, they they need help understanding that because there's some natural, yeah, okay, well, I'm doing plastic, I'm kind of offsetting it, so I'll call it an offset. Or, yeah, call, you know, a tree is a great thing, so I've got green products now. So some of those claims if I'm honest, are purely innocent. It's people yeah, that are yeah. thing getting carried away. There's also a sinister side with, with people that know exactly what they're doing. Um, but if we, we've created a rule set that's very black and white and clear, you know, and, and um, we, we're doing that because it's quite a gray area of space. Um, and the more clarity and uh, uh, we can create, the better, I think. Yeah, and I guess... This is a slightly loaded question. And I'm trying to not get political. It, surely this is something government should be regulating. So I, I definitely think it should be regulated. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a massive advocate for that. I suppose the challenge of that being that you cannot afford to overlay a heavy burden of governance that massively impacts the efficiency. You, you will get an overlay of governance. If it's regulated, that's natural. But you want to make sure that's to a degree that isn't stopping the right stuff. Um, Interestingly, you you can either regulate at that end. So how do you count, you know, assess and all that sort of stuff? Um, Or you regulate at the other end, which is um, basically saying you can only use these things in this way. Which is something the EU is, is, has made some announcements about recently in terms of the link of using things like this to then claim carbon neutrality of product or whatever it might be. And, and that comes that's exactly what we've been pushing already in terms of how you communicate this stuff, um, yeah. what it's linked to. Because I think there is a danger, um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, a light should be shone on this space and we should be challenging hard for more rigor and focus about the value and impact that's being created. But we also don't want to go down the rabbit hole of saying, well, if this isn't thing isn't bulletproof in return, we shouldn't do it. Because 
an awful lot of the things we should definitely be doing. It's just a question of how much is it a benefit? And, you know, and if what we find as well when we talk to companies, um, uh, which worries me a little, is, is a lot of companies want to take action, but they feel like they should know what their footprint is first. Interesting. And your footprint is really complex to have yeah. a high degree of accuracy. But knowing what you should change to reduce your footprint, it's really easy to pick the low-hanging fruit fast. So you, you don't need to know what your exact footprint is. You need a kind of rough idea. But you can. You, what you want to be doing is cracking on to reduce it rather than, you know, putting hours and hours of effort to get you five percent more accuracy some of the time if, if that makes sense so you you can don't get me wrong accuracy is important but only at a stage when you're not at the low-hanging fruit anymore yeah or it's um so we've we've got a client that has just developed a part level carbon calculator for manufacturing and that's a response to oems and large manufacturers basically saying we want to pass well we want to understand our full supply chain and the carbon impact of that so that's a response rather than yeah yeah well going out funny we launched um last week what we call a carbon estimator and we we called it an estimator rather than a calculator because it is an estimate but what we've effectively done and the challenge we gave ourselves is what's the minimum number of inputs a company can make to give them a rough idea of where on the park they are from a footprint point of view and how is that spread across scope one two and three because actually what most companies if then they're, they're you know new to this world haven't appreciated is this whole world of scope three that's enormous mm-hmm. that they haven't really thought about um but what what effectively the, the, our estimator does is you input the the market sector and subsector that you operate in your annual turnover and your main company of operations and from that we calculate an a, a high level estimate of your footprint and how that is likely to be proportionally spread across the scopes mm. based on your market sector from much broader um, data sets that we have. Is it accurate? Is that the footprint of that company? Of course it's not. But is it in the ballpark that's going to give them a good enough idea of, of where they should be focusing, what they should be doing and enabling them to crack on? Yes, for a period of time. And so what we're trying to do at Switch to Zero is get people in the game you know, yeah. then you can improve and then you can get things going i would love us to have the world's all singing all dancing accurate footprint calculator but you know you, you don't need it you know we're so far away from being net zero let's get the obvious stuff done and, and then let's get more more and more sophisticated over time now, clearly, there are some businesses that already need much more sophistication. I'm not, you know, we're, everyone's at a different stage. Mm. But we are so, so far away from being anywhere net zero um, that, you know, the masses need help just getting on the playing field, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I guess because you, you've obviously seen this movement evolve, especially from the perspective of your corporate career. And we know greenwashing has been around for 20 years and we know people have paid lip service to this kind of stuff. But do you, do you actually think there is an intent now to tackle this within business or is it still just words? I think businesses are now realising for two reasons. One, consumers are more cute to it. So 
um, they're, they're asking the right questions more often and have a healthy degree of cynicism uh, about what's being claimed. Um, and they are fearing to a much higher degree the level of reputational damage that that creates their brand if they get it wrong. That actually a lot of the customers we talk to come to us because they want that third party kind of endorsement of or, or, or categorization of what they're doing. Um, you know, they're not doing it in-house now because they want to work with somebody that operates in that space. Um, and, and that also comes with picking projects. You know, you can pick lots of ratings and you, but is it the right rating structure? Is it the right, you know, geographic area? Should it be that category? These are all understandable questions. And if you're not operating in this space daily, it's a difficult one. If, you know, your day job is operations manager for this site and you've been mm. given the head of sustainability as a bit of a site yeah, gig, which is quite common. Yeah. So, so, you know, from that point of view, yes, I think companies are, are more, more fee- fearful of, of greenwashing um, from a reputational damage perspective. But also what you're seeing with the introduction of more and more regulation and climate laws is the... Um, the organizations that are looking to drive change, the, the green pieces of this world and, and, and others, rather than taking lots of demonstrative action that they used to do in the old days, I know it still happens a lot, don't get me wrong, but actually what they're also doing is to go after these people and sue them in court. Oh, okay, yeah, so, so that they are, you know, they have big legal teams that are understanding the, the client le- um, regs, the promises that have been made by organizations and they're holding them to account against climate laws and regulations in court creating massive fines and an enormous amount of bad press which is way way more powerful for a big court in terms of getting them to change course than camping outside their front door with flags and and banners a lot of the time don't get me wrong i have a lot of admiration for people that do that but but you know what climate regulation and laws are increasingly providing providing is a is a very strong foundation for legal action and what you've seen over the last well since 2017 the number of climate laws and regulations has more than doubled from when it where it was before and the number of legal cases that are now being processed and in court are 10x what they were 5 years ago and, and and all of that is pressure on corporates primarily to get it right and do what they say they're doing. Um, yes, it is kind of more stick than carrot. Um, and I suppose that, that's understandable, though. I mean, I, you know, I know in my own life, you know, I know the climate crisis is happening and I still drive a car. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's more stick than carrot, if I'm honest, because brands that are known for being very transparent and are doing the right thing. Well, Patagonia is a perfect example Mm -hmm. of a brand that has done some amazing things and consistently so. It it affects their sales funnel. You know, they sell a lot more product to a lot more people because those people are making a conscious choice to purchase from a brand they consider responsible. Um, And what you're seeing, particularly with younger generations coming through, the level of impact on that perception of social responsibility and and, and the sustainability impact particularly has an increasingly prevalent influence on their decision choice. And so 
you know, while there's the, the, the stick side from a regulatory perspective, if you get this right as an organization mm, mm. in the right way, so it's not about the marketing message, it's about what you're doing, how transparent it is, how clear it is, and how right it is, bluntly, that has a fantastic impact on your sales funnel. So, so mm. there, there is a very commercial reason why these businesses are also focusing in this way. It's not all stick is, is really what, what I was saying. No, and it was it was a slightly provocative question for me because actually, you know, <laughs> interesting. This is a lot of our advice to clients is to get ahead of this kind of thing and sustainability. It's not a differentiator. I.e., I think because a lot of companies now are playing in this area, you can't say we're the only ones doing it, yeah. but it definitely is a trust builder. Yeah, it is, and the biggest builder of trust is transparency. Yeah, um, and, and and simplicity of message. So, but but we go to quite extreme lengths to ensure that we maximize the the ability to be transparent so it's fine saying we've got something somewhere you can see if you really dig for it and look for it that's not really transparency if we issue a certificate to to customers because they planted trees plastic waste or voluntary carbon offsets as an example we embed a qr code if you scan that qr code it takes you straight to a page to confirm what's been done by whom when and there are links there to what we call our public ledger which shows a line by line transaction of all the invoices credits and everything else we've done is it perfect no we're going to continually improve it and evolve it based on the feedback we get but you need that level of transparency yeah. um, to create the, the trust that that you hope to engender. Yeah, because customers and consumers are kind of tired of this messaging a little bit. Like there is messaging fatigue. You know, they've seen X, Y, Z company challenges in the coffee industry. Um, well, I mean, there are lots of big companies that have got got you know, and, and but um, but I think we should name that. Some big big companies have definitely got it wrong, and I do think we should name names. Um, and, and, you know, we should hopefully forgive people and give them an opportunity to put it right. Mm. Um, and and not is it's not always deliberate. Um, it might be over eagerness some of the time. It could be ignorant some of the time. It can be deliberate some of the time. But we should be certainly naming these names in my view. I agree. The final point I would love to make is there is rightly challenge in the space of offsets, um, as in voluntary carbon offsets in that market. And I do believe it should be a regulated market in the right way over time um, and as quickly as possible. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not a great thing to do to become more sustainable in the way that we behave. But neither does it mean that we should allow ourselves or businesses to consider that job done. So just mm-hmm. because you're offsetting your footprint, it doesn't change the fact you have a footprint. So offsetting is an important, in my view, transitory mechanism to max to minimize your current impact while you change it. Um, and you know w- what we need to ensure is we're driving the right behaviors. So personally, I think offsets are an incredibly valuable tool. Um, but they're only a valuable tool if you're doing stuff to reduce your footprint at the same time. If you're if you're in, under the illusion that buying, you know, offsetting your flight every time you fly makes you good, it doesn't. You should be flying less. But if you have to fly, offsetting your flight 
is the right thing to do, if that makes sense. So, you know, those are the sorts of personal decisions we have to make, I suppose, is really um, where I'm coming from, from an offset perspective. Yes, and I think there also has to be a recognition that this is an extremely complex challenge. And everyone is everyone is primed to look for a simple solution. Everyone wants a simple solution, even at a kind of personal level, and will kind of gravitate towards that. But unfortunately, as you've articulated it, it's just not the case. And no, it's not, but I think we should get there. And, and to mm. be honest, you know, part of my reason for coming into this problem and having a look at it is you have to solve the problem upstream. You can't expect the consumer particularly yeah. to solve the problem. So what we should really be challenging ourselves to is, okay, how do you get net zero? And by net zero, I mean, there's always likely to be some sort of footprint for the time being. So by, by net zero means there's probably going to be an offset element to a degree, but you want to reduce the, the, the footprint of everything involved. But how do you create and deliver product to the door of your consumer that minimizes footprint and is net zero before they bought it? You know, so you know what happens at ends of life. You know what is happening from cradle to grave with that product. That is in the gift of industry and and, and commerce to sort out. Um, and that's where we'll end up. Because if you're putting the problem on the consumer, <laughs> it's completely unfair. So so we, that that's what we've got to change. And we've got to do the same thing to a degree with businesses. You've got to make mm. it easy and clear for them to start to take the right actions and the right steps. Yeah, and this this episode is part of a kind of our mini series on sustainability and kind of technology. And right. um, the kind of preceding episode that will come out before this that listeners will have heard is around supply chain for SMEs and look, okay. trying to make your supply chain more sustainable. And it is it is that question of not knowing where to start. So I noticed, well, I've heard you kind of mentioned you're building up an educational bank of resources. Yeah. If you're sat here listening to this thinking, oh, my God, I really want to do something about this. I want to explore this. Is, is that a good place to come and, and kind of start yeah, your journey? Absolutely. You can sign up as a free member. We don't charge to become a member of Switch to Zero or anything. And, and we have lots of articles. And actually, when you're looking at your footprint as a business, we've broken down the scopes. And we've just given you a, a very high level. Here are the top things you can consider doing that are free to reduce things in that footprint. Here are the top things you can consider doing that you'll probably have to pay a bit for. Um, and, and so we're just suggesting some of the obvious low hanging fruit to start with. And then as they start to action those things, there are more, you know, deeper, more complex articles that go into the top 10 lists and the top 15, you know, and, and the various other things you can look at. And hopefully we encourage businesses to take action, but then to say, right, OK, I now need to get to the nitty gritty of what my footprint is exactly because I've done all the obvious things. I've transitioned to renewable energy. I, I use electric vehicles for distribution. I... You know, I don't have plastics in any of my packaging or whatever, you know, all of those sorts of things that you, you can you can start to tick off relatively easily with a bit of structure and planning. It's really for me, it's at that point that data becomes an issue and yeah. complexity becomes an issue. 70 percent of the problem, I'm maybe exaggerating, let's say 50 percent of the problem you don't need any of that stuff for to take the action. You know, mm. it's obvious most of the time. So we, we we kind of do list some, you know, a lot of the tips. So yes, short version, 
please join up as a free member. Have a look at the stuff. If there's stuff there you don't know or is confusing, tell us because we're we're desperately looking for feedback to do more stuff. Um, and so if there are gaps, we're happy to work on it with them directly um, or more generically, and, and we'll put it up there as, a, as a, another addition and another uh, contribution. Brilliant. I'll make sure that that link for people to follow is down in the show notes. So if you're listening, go and sign up. It, it's free. What you know? How can you argue with that? Really, that's what. I, interestingly, I was kind of on it earlier, looking at doing the um, calculator, the uh, estimator for right. open yeah, yeah. estimator for open velocity, and it was a really useful tool just to even get you starting to think about things. Yes. So, um, thank you so much for coming on, Ian. That was a really mm-hmm. great and insightful conversation. Um, I learned a lot from it, and I'm sure listeners did too. Pleasure, fabulous to, to uh, talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Ian for coming on and sharing your story. That was incredibly interesting. And hopefully you can tell I I was kind of (laughs) picking at a number of different threads there to kind of see what's under the hood and all of this kind of greenwashing and and the challenge of building in this space, as I said at the beginning, is huge, right? It's a huge issue that demands a huge response, but it also demands kind of actors and companies to be responsible. There's money to be made, but it's got to be made in the right way. So finally, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, please like and leave a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. It just helps us reach more people and all that kind of wonderful marketing stuff. And finally, if you have an episode topic you'd like to see explored or you even want to come on the podcast yourself and share your journey, I would love to hear from you. You can get me directly on bethanaopenvelocity.co.uk. I'm also on pretty much every major social platform apart from tiktok well i'm on tiktok i just lurk but you can find me at beth and vincent on the social platform of your choice but until next time i will leave it there and wishing you a fantastic rest of your week whatever you're doing